Well, today we are wrapping up our series, Foundations, that we've been in for the last several weeks. And I'm not going to take the time to unpack where we've been. You can find all the messages on our website, hopecommunityonline.org, or, or by going to our YouTube channel. Uh, you can find all of the messages there, as well as discussion questions. Uh, but today's message is for those of you who would consider yourself a follower of Jesus. If you're here today, you're watching online, and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you're off the hook today. I'm focusing in only on those who claim the name of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I really hope that you decide to follow Jesus. I can't make you, but what I can do is I can try to inspire you to follow Jesus. And I hope that perhaps that today's message will do that in you. Now, we're, we're wrapping up this series. We're talking about uh, how we are called to live as followers of Jesus. Now, growing up in the church, uh, I was uh, taught maybe not explicitly, but uh, it was rather taught, you know, just beneath the surface, implicitly, that being a Christian meant following a bunch of rules, that it meant uh, knowing stuff, uh, especially knowing stuff about the Bible, uh, that we memorized verses, we, we learned some of the history of the Bible, the pastor used a lot of Greek, especially a lot of Greek, um, and as a teen, I don't really remember any specific message where there was a clear application where I knew exactly what to do with all that Greek that I had, had learned. Uh, it seemed to be more about knowing facts about Jesus, and I'll you know, give the pastor benefit of the doubt that I was a teenager, so it's very likely that I was missing something, that perhaps I was just bored with church. Um, but I never saw a clear application with what I was hearing, with how am I supposed to actually live this out? And perhaps that was your experience. Perhaps that you were taught that the faith was about knowing a bunch of stuff. Perhaps you were taught that it was about being good so that way you could get to heaven. And perhaps uh, you were taught that it was about being good or else God is going to get you. Or maybe you were taught that it was about being good so that way one day when you get to heaven, you got a bigger mansion than the next person because you were better than they were. And the th problem with all of those approaches, the thing that's missing is Jesus. Jesus is missing from all those approaches because it focuses on what I can do and it's all about my behavior and, and my knowledge. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with knowing stuff, with knowing things about the Bible. But the deepest form of Christian maturity is knowing a lot of stuff, right? Now, that's wrong. The, the deepest form of Christian maturity is application. It's living it out. You know a lot of people who, who maybe they know a lot of stuff about the Bible, but it doesn't seem like they actually know Jesus because of how they live, how they treat people. Some of these people are the meanest people that maybe you've ever met. If you're not a Christian, maybe that's why you're not a Christian, because you've met people like that, that claim to follow Jesus, but yet their life doesn't give any evidence of it. And so knowledge doesn't equal maturity. It's the application of that knowledge that equals maturity. It's growing to be more like Christ. You see, the deepest form of Christian maturity is loving your neighbor as yourself. It's how we demonstrate our love for God. Now, we don't have to do things to be right with God because God said, through my son Jesus, by trusting in him, you are already made right. It's by trusting in him, not by trusting in yourself. It's only through Jesus that we can be made right with God. Now, we go show that we are right with God by how we love our neighbors. And it's this idea of love that we talked about last week. It's the, the Greek word agape, which means a self-sacrificial kind of love. It's a love that's so different than what our culture says. Our culture says love is love. Well, 
that's circular reasoning. What does love even mean according to that definition? But according to the Christian definition, love is self-sacrifice. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter that commonly gets read at weddings that says that love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love forgives all things, believes all things. That's what we see when we look at the Bible's definition of what love is. And Jesus demonstrated that love by going to the cross for you and for me. And by willingly laying down his life, he demonstrated the fact that God is love. You see, love requires imitating Jesus and laying down our right for another person or for a group of people. It's why as followers of Jesus, we cannot mistreat people, anybody. People that we agree with, people that we disagree with, people that we agree with politically, people that we disagree with politically. It doesn't justify our mistreatment of them. And so what would happen then if we began to actually live this out? Because as a church, our mission is to inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging in the life and the mission of the church. That's our marching orders. Because as I said, we can't make you follow Jesus, but we can inspire you to follow Jesus by how we live. Because it's by engaging in faith that we grow, by being in community with others, by serving, by giving, by doing life with other believers, by engaging in spiritual practices, by applying the things. That's how we grow. It's not by learning a bunch of stuff, but by living these truths out. And our mission as a church is the same mission of every church. It's go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. And those are the words of Jesus that he gave to his apostles and he gave to the church. And so our mission as we center around it is to help you to engage in the life of the church, to apply the teachings of Jesus to your life because we believe that applying these teachings it results in a transformed life, that following Jesus will make you better at life and make life better for you and for those around you. And so today we're unpacking what we believe about the Christian life. Specifically, we believe that all Christians are to follow Jesus in everything. Not just some things, but in everything, in every aspect of our lives, that we should live for Christ and not for themselves. By obedience to the scriptures and daily yielding to the Spirit of God, every believer should continue to mature and be conformed to the image of Christ. That idea, this summary statement, comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the the most popular sermon that Jesus gave. It's likely a set of teachings that he gave uh, throughout his ministry, where he, he establishes what it looks like to live as a new humanity, live as somebody who is part of his kingdom. And it's in the the Sermon on the Mount that we learn how to follow Jesus. And we don't have enough time to unpack the entire Sermon on the Mount because we could spend really like several months unpacking all that's in that sermon. But you can sum up Jesus' teaching in that sermon in two commands. It's commonly called the, the Jesus Creed. It's love God and love people. We don't get to forget about the other commands of Jesus. So often we do this in the name of uh, these commands. We adopt the cultural definition of, of love instead of what the Bible and what God says love is. We, we adopt uh, uh, the, the culture's definition of, of living instead of Jesus' standard according to his commands. 
for living. Jesus has a very high standard. We don't get to uh, skirt around that, that standard in the name of, of love as our culture defines love. Because so often we think of, well, you know, I'm, I'm loving my neighbor. And it's like, yay, Jesus, you know, we, we love you. We, we love what you're doing, but don't touch my life. Don't change my, how I view sexuality. Don't change how I treat my neighbor. Don't change how I view politics. But Jesus, I love you, and I'm loving my neighbor. And Jesus has a very high standard for our life. You see, this definition of love is so simple, yet it's far more demanding than the rules that we make and the rules that we try to come up with from the Old Testament. These are far more demanding than just knowing stuff. In fact, Jesus talked about this, and he illustrated how we are to live this command out. Uh, he, was, he, he, he did this uh, through various stories and various parables, uh, which is a story uh, that has a deeper meaning or a heavenly meaning. And Jesus uh, did this on one occasion that Luke, the, the gospel writer, records for us. Luke was a historian. He was a physician. He was a really good researcher. And he, he created an orderly account of the things concerning the life of Jesus. And he records what happened when Jesus was questioned by somebody who thought that all they had to do was learn a bunch of stuff. But that's where it ended for that person. And Luke records this for us. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The expert in the law, or this lawyer, he was somewhat hostile to Jesus' teachings because he was wanting to test Jesus as Matthew records this account. He says a teacher in the law stood up to test Jesus, that he didn't really want to know. He didn't really care, but he was trying to, as we'll see, he was trying to justify himself. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was concerned with, you know, with getting into heaven, not with with actually entering into Jesus' kingdom, not actually modeling his life after Jesus. Basically, what's, what's the minimum that I can do, Jesus, and still be good with God? So often we ask this question, we say, is X a sin? Is it okay if I do, you know, this? Can I still be good with God? It's a, it's a question that really has me all at the center, not how can I be more like Christ, it's a question that has, a, a, at its core, how, you know, where is the line? How far can I go and still be good with God? And Jesus continues on, or Luke continues on. He says, what is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? You know, Jesus is saying, look, the answer to the lawyer's question is something that he should already know because he was a lawyer. He was familiar with the, with the Jewish law. He likely had memorized at least the Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures uh, by the time he was 10 years old and likely had memorized much more beyond that. If he didn't memorize it, he was likely very familiar with it. And so Jesus says, what's written in the law? You're a lawyer, you tell me. And the lawyer answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so there we have the answer. The lawyer knew. He knew that it was faith that expressed itself through love. That it was love for God and love for neighbor. It was the answer that consisted of, of the, the Jewish Shema, which uh, is, a, is a phrase that, or a saying that they repeated two times a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor 
as yourself. They, they repeated that over and over. And that second part comes from the book of Leviticus, part of, of uh, God's law that was separate from the Deuteronomy law, which is where the Shema comes from. It was a command to, to, to love those that were in their community, to love their neighbors, and it demonstrated then how they are to live this out in their community. And it says this in Leviticus 18, or 19, 18, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against the members of, of your community. But there it is, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And for the Jewish people, their neighbor was fellow Jews. It was those that were part of their community. Jesus continues on. He says, but you've answered correctly, he told them. Do this and you will live. Do this. Don't just believe this, but go and live this out. Because this, this law was meant to go from just mental knowledge to actually application, to being lived out. That's what eternal life was. Do this, meaning that you know, Jesus was implying that the lawyer hadn't been doing that, that he knew it, but he wasn't actually living it out. So therefore, it was, as James would say, it's dead faith, because faith without works is dead. You know, if you, or your theology doesn't make you a more loving person or if it justifies the mistreatment of a group of people, then you've got the wrong theology because our, our theology, our understanding of who God is should make us more loving, more forgiving, more willing to follow Jesus because faith was meant to go somewhere. It was meant to be lived out. Belief wasn't separated from action. They were one and the same. If you said that you believed something, then you automatically lived it out. You didn't say that you believed something and then you didn't do it because then you actually didn't believe it. And so this idea of dead faith is actually a lack of faith. It's a faith that doesn't trust that the good news of Jesus is actually good news that has the power to transform and to change our communities. Because if the good news of Jesus is actually not really good news, then there's no need for us to live it out. And so this was the perspective that the lawyer was coming to Jesus with. That he wasn't actually living this out, but Jesus said, do this and you will live. That is, you will find life. Because there's life in living out the ways, the standards of Jesus. It leads to life. It leads to human flourishing because that's what Jesus has set up. That's how he set, set up the world to function. And so often we want to try to take life by creating our own standards of right and wrong and trying to live that out. But often what happens is we end up oppressing people. We end up taking life, but the way of Jesus is found in keeping his commands and following Jesus. Continuing on, but the lawyer wanting to justify himself asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Again, this lawyer had less than sincere intentions in asking Jesus this question because he wanted to trick Jesus. He didn't really want to follow Jesus and and do this because he had that faith. He wanted to justify himself. That is, he wanted to make himself look good. Because he knew the law, but he really didn't want to love his neighbor. Because he thought he was off the hook. Because for him, loving his neighbor meant loving those that were part of his community, part of the the Jewish nation. And Jesus, always using questions like this to teach, didn't miss this opportunity to tell us the intent behind this law to love our neighbor as ourselves and what that would actually look like. And Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. Now, the the distance between Jerusalem and Jericho is about 17 miles. 
Jerusalem is located about 2,500 feet above sea level. So that's significantly higher than we are. We're about 1,100 here in Minerva. Uh, But 2,500 feet, the Dead Sea, Jericho, was located at 800 feet below sea level. And I've been from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea, and it's a continuous descent down, down, down through mountains, through rough terrain. And there, were lot, there would have been lots of places for people to hide, to, to catch travelers and to rob them. And the robbers, they, they stripped a man, they beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. And this man was there, he was in a desperate state. And then along comes a priest. A priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the priest would have been the person that was going, you know, worked in the temple that represented uh, mankind to God. They were kind of like the mediator between God and humanity. And he passed by on the other side. But then, in the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. So the Levite was somebody who worked in the temple. They were kind of like the, the church staff, so to speak, that they were uh, in charge of administering uh, the duties of the temple. The, so the priest represented you know, the people to God, and then the Levites did basically everything else. They helped with, with sacrifices. These were, were people that knew the law, that knew what was required of them. They were the ones that knew that they were to love their neighbor, especially one who is in such great need. We, this, the scripture doesn't say, but it's believed that this man was a Jewish man, that it was one of their neighbors, because of how Jesus continues on after this. But these were people that, that knew the scriptures, that taught the scriptures, that passed it on to the next generation, people that knew the words of the prophets, like the prophet Hosea that said, for I desire the faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Another translation says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Micah said this that about what God requires. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Again, so the, the people that passed by, they knew these passages. They knew that they were supposed to seek justice, to love mercy, and not sacrifice. As the prophet Isaiah said, stop bringing me useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your celebrations, new moon, Sabbaths, and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand the iniquity with a festival. And so they knew that, that sacrifices weren't enough, that it wasn't just about keeping the law, but it was living out the law, that it was loving their neighbor, showing mercy, especially to a neighbor who is in such great need. But then Jesus twists the story a little bit, but... A Samaritan. A Samaritan. A Samaritan was a, an outsider, an, uh, an outcast. The Samaritans came from uh, a group of people that were left behind after the, the Jews were carried off into exile, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they brought in people from all the other nations to live in, uh, that they had conquered, to live in, or in Israel. And so the Jewish people that got left behind married all these other people. And that was a big no-no. They weren't supposed to to marry outside of their community. And so this became the Samaritans. And the Jewish people, they hated the Samaritans. They were the half-breed because they broke God's law. And Jesus deliberately chose this person to illustrate 
that it's not nationality or race that matters when it comes to who our neighbor is. This man did what Jesus did to people. When he saw the man who was injured, he had compassion. That he had the same compassion that we see Jesus showing to people who were injured, people who were sick, people who um, were outcasts. People had, or Jesus had compassion on those people. And so then the Samaritan, he went over to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And so this man was, was willing to, to lay down his comfort of riding on his own donkey to put this man. And now this, this Samaritan had to walk. He went out of his comfort zone. He laid down his rights for the benefit of this person. He's willing to provide him with basic first aid and get the man the help that he needed. And so the Samaritan ends up being the hero of the story, not the Jews who knew that they were supposed to love their neighbor, who knew the law, but rather it was the Samaritan that didn't, wasn't supposed to know the law, but ended up being the one that showed mercy, showed love. And so the story continues on. The next day, he took out two denarii, that's about two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. This man left expecting it to cost him more, that he was willing to, to do whatever it took to see this man brought back to health, to see this man restored expecting it to cost him something, and that's what love is. That's what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's how we demonstrate that we are good with God. It's not by maintaining our comfort, but it's by laying down our rights for the benefit of other people. Jesus continues on. He says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer answered, The one who showed mercy to him. He said, then Jesus told him, go and do the same. You see, Jesus was making a point here that it was less important to know who your neighbor was and more important to be a good neighbor because it was the love of God that transcends who our neighbor is, that, that shows us what it means to be a good neighbor. It's the love of God that demonstrates love of neighbor that transcends the barriers that we put up as human beings all the barriers that our culture tends to build. You see, the priest and the Levite, they were supposed to love their neighbor, but they put up barriers. You see, the love of God means that we accept through grace what God has done for us, and we begin to live out this command to love our neighbor, even when it costs us, because it, love is always costly, because the love of God isn't demonstrated in theological or biblical understanding, and that's good, but it's not enough. It, it must be lived out. It's love in action. It's love is self-sacrifice. It's not love as an emotion or as a feeling, but it's love as a decision. It's something that's going to cost me for the benefit of others because that's what it cost Jesus. Jesus demonstrated the love of God by going to the cross to willingly lay down his life for your sake and for mine. And so passing by that injured person on the road had concern for self and not concern for our neighbor. And as the Apostle Paul would say, that's a work of the flesh. That's what comes naturally. But as followers of Jesus, we're to do what doesn't come naturally. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to live by obedience to the scriptures and daily yielding to the Spirit of God 
Every believer should continue to mature and to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the Apostle Paul was, was writing to help churches figure out what it looked like to live this out. And Paul wrote a, church, a letter to the church at Galatia. And he said this in helping them figure it out. He said, I say then, walk by the Spirit. And you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You were not under the law. Again, to summarize what Paul is saying, Paul is saying, look, the flesh desires what's opposite of God's way, of God's spirit. The spirit does things that are different in us that are different than what comes naturally to us. Now, we are to be led by the spirit and not by what comes naturally to us. That's what following Jesus looks like. But following the way of our culture leads to what Paul is going to talk about next. It's what adopting our culture's standard of love leads to. Now then, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of of anger, selfish ambitions, decisions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I warn you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of of God. Paul's point here is that the works of our flesh are obvious. What comes natural is obvious. That is plain for everyone to see, and those who live according to that way, to what comes naturally, are not walking in the way of Jesus. They're not walking by the power of his spirit, and they're certainly not walking in Jesus' way to love their neighbor as themselves and to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then Paul contrasts that idea with how we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus. How we're supposed to live as people led by God's Spirit and what happens when we do that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is against such things. The way of God's spirit, the way of his kingdom is so different than what comes naturally. It produces good things, things that the law is not opposed to. We have laws against all those other things, all those things that come naturally, even though it seems like we've got less and less of those laws these days. As the the foundations of our society continue to erode away and be torn down, not to be rebuilt in any kind of manner. But Paul is saying, look, live according to the Spirit, because there's no law against the Spirit. There's no law against what the Spirit produces in us. We, we want all these things. We all want more joy. We all want more patience, more peace. But the only way that we get that is by submitting to Jesus, by following him as our king. Because whenever we try to get all these things, peace, joy, love, on our own, it leads to the things that Apostle Paul said comes naturally. It leads to anger. It leads to selfish ambition. So we must submit to Jesus. Submit to his way because his way is the way that leads to life. The other way leads to death. So often we we try to, to, to think that we know best and define what it looks like to love our neighbor according to how our culture says love is. But that leads to death. That leads to anger, hatred, selfish ambition. And that's what we see everywhere The way of Jesus, the way of self-sacrifice, leads to life. 
leads to flourishing for others. And yes, it might mean that it doesn't lead to flourishing for me because I have sacrificed myself, but it leads to life for another person. Paul continues on, he says, but those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That our old way of living, it's now dead. Paul would others say elsewhere that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in this flesh, in this mortal body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It doesn't mean that we get to live however we want. Because Jesus has a high standard, a better standard. It's one that isn't popular in our culture. In our culture that's obsessed with pleasure, with hedonism. But it's a message that says, come die to yourself. Because in dying to yourself, you will find life. Because anybody who would try to keep his life will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Because it's in dying to your flesh, to what comes naturally, that we find life that we find flourishing. And so if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us keep on living, keep on walking. It's a daily walking in the way of God and of His Spirit. It's being conformed to the image of Christ by the power of His Spirit. Because when we keep in step with the Spirit, we will produce good fruit. We will produce these things as we seek to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. But it's only in self-sacrificial love, not in the way that our world defines love. Because this is how Jesus lived and this is how he lived that brought us life and what we are called to do. And so as a church, we believe that all Christians are to follow Jesus in everything. Not just some things, but in everything. That they should live for Christ and not for themselves. That we're to live for Christ because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. That we shouldn't live for ourselves to go for a form of Christian hedonism where it's all about me, it's all about pleasure. But no, we've laid that self lie, or we've made that self dead because Jesus' way leads to life. And by obedience to the scriptures and daily yielding to the spirit of God, every believer should continue to mature. That we should mature, that we should grow more in Christ's likeness and learning to love as the way that Jesus did and be conformed to the image of Christ. And so how can you follow the spirit and live for yourself? You can't. Because so much of how we live is oftentimes for ourselves and not for the benefit of others. That's why joining a, being part of a Christian community and, and doing life with other believers that you don't agree with, as we talked about last week, you learn to love those that are different from you. You learn to, to become more like Christ. Because so often our focus is on me and what I can get in order to stay comfortable. It's why the Christian desire to take over the government isn't rooted in the way of Jesus because at its core it has a desire for familiarity and ease, for making things easy for my group, for my way of living at the expense of others. But Jesus and his spirit calls us to a different, to a better way. How can we live in such a way that benefits others? How can we pass laws that would promote human flourishing for all at the expense of me, for all my neighbors? 
because we are slaves to Jesus if Jesus is truly our Savior. Paul also said that he was a slave to Christ. That means that Christ is our master, that he gets to tell us how to live. When Jesus says, I know it's cliche to say, but when Jesus says, jump, we say, how high? Because our marching orders come from Jesus. It comes from his commands, from his standards. That's what it means when we say that he is Lord, that we are not our own, that we were bought at a price, that we don't get to define love and then live however we want to, but Jesus does. We are his It's the good news of Jesus that takes root in us and transforms us, that equally confronts all people, that equally transforms all people, and it frees all people, no exceptions. Not just the poor, not just the rich, not just the elite white, not just poor uh, multi-ethnic people, but it transforms all people. Because most of us, we want to live, most of us want Jesus, and then we also want to live for ourselves. And what makes us feel good, again, that's a form of Christian hedonism, but Jesus calls us to a better way. To put it a different way, when we don't know what to do, ask what does love require? Of you, that's a question that Andy Stanley of North Point Community Church came up with, but it's a question that has stuck with me, and it transforms how we live. Because at its, at its core, it's application of the two greatest commands to love God and to love our neighbor. It's, it's application of the knowledge that we have learned because it's application that, that transforms our communities, it transforms our homes, not by learning a bunch of stuff. Again, that, that's good to learn, but that's not what makes us mature. You see, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love builds up, and that's how we keep in step with God's spirit. And so when you encounter someone who believes differently than you about Christian involvement in civic government, what does love require? Of you, When you get a call or a text from your ex, what does love require of you? When you come home and your spouse isn't so loving, what does love require of you? Because love is, not a, is a decision, it's not a feeling. For those of you still in school, what would happen if whenever maybe your friend makes the team and you didn't, or they, they get the part in the play that, and you didn't, or they maybe they get a better chair than you in band? What does love require of you? Not just love as our culture defines love, but the love of Jesus that has the power to transform, that leads to life. The love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross, not to take life from us, but to give his life so that we might find it. What does love require of you? So imagine for a second, what would happen if we actually began to live this out? If we as a church got this right, if we actually learned to to, to to follow Jesus and how we live and how we love God and how we demonstrate our love for God by loving those made in his image. Imagine what could happen in our community if just this small group of people here today began to live this out. As if we lived as if our, our God is love. What would happen if we lived as if we were right with God because God has made us right with himself through the person of Jesus. So what does love require of you? Let's pray. God, we, we ask that you would continue to challenge us by your word, that you would continue to shape us, that we would learn to, to live out your kingdom way as we learn to love our neighbor as ourself. 
because it's love of neighbor that demonstrates that we are right with you, that we love you, that your love is costly, that it's going to cost us something, but it's a cost that leads to life, that leads to flourishing. So God, would you give us the courage, the boldness to live this out? And now we pray, our Father in heaven, Lord, holy is your name, not our name, but holy is your name. May your kingdom come, not our kingdom. May your will be done, not our will, on earth, in our homes, in our community, in this church, as it is in heaven. God, that is our prayer, that we would come in alignment with you. God, would you give us today our daily bread and lead us not into temptation for it's impossible for you to lie and deliver us from the evil one because you have, yours is the victory and yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.